My name is Anna Warberry. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. In November 2021, the UK is hosting the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. In the run-up to this critical event, the Climate Briefing podcast brings you everything you need to know about the COP negotiations and international climate politics. Throughout the year, we'll also be covering other important climate and environmental conferences, like the UN Biodiversity Summit, and we'll be exploring the challenges and opportunities the transition to net zero societies entail. What solutions exist to help address climate change? And what can major emitters do to reduce their emissions? What are the key themes for COP26? And what do the poorest and most climate vulnerable nations want from the negotiations? To find out, we'll be speaking to policymakers, climate negotiators, business leaders and experts from academia and civil society worldwide. Hello, everybody. I'm Ben Horton, and welcome back to this, a bonus episode of The Climate Briefing. It's just me this week. My colleague Anna will be back with us for the next episode. But today, our attention is turning to the G20. The G20 is an international gathering of 19 major world powers, plus the European Union, which meets regularly to discuss economic development and environmental challenges that are facing the world. Now, the G20 has massive potential to affect change at a global level, accounting for, by some estimates, 90% of global domestic product, 80% of international trade, two-thirds of the world's population live in G20 member countries, and particularly significant for our conversation, 84% of all fossil fuel emissions are produced by G20 countries. So if change can be made at the G20 level, then it could be really significant. This year, the G20 is being hosted by Italy, who, as we know, are also co-hosts of COP26, which makes the link between these two forums even more significant. And in July, a series of meetings ahead of the main G20 summit, which will take place in October in Rome, could really tell us the potential for major new commitments from this body. On the 9th and 10th of July, we saw the G20 finance ministers gather for talks in Venice, lucky them, ahead of the International Climate Conference, which took place on the 11th. And then between the 22nd and 23rd of July, there will be environmental, climate and energy ministerial meetings at the G20 level in Naples. So we're speaking today sort of between those two moments and to discuss the key takeaways from Venice and look ahead to the G20's role at COP26 and beyond. I'm joined today by Luca Bergamaschi, co-founder of the Italian climate think tank ECHO. Luca, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So could we begin just by outlining maybe the significance of the G20 within climate action generally, and particularly in this year um, of COP26? Sure. As you recalled, the G20 are really the countries that are most responsible for greenhouse gas emissions, and therefore they hold the keys to emissions reduction, uh, but also to building uh, resilience to uh, worsening climate impacts. So if you move them, you literally uh, move the world. Also, this year is the year where both Italy and the UK hold the G20 and the G7 presidency. So 
the uh, collective and joint effort of um, these two countries can really be significant and amplify uh, action uh, from the G7 to the G20. And critically, the G20 summit will take place just the day before the start of the COP26. And so what happens uh, actually in Rome is extremely significant for the trust and the you know, starting conditions with which country will meet in Glasgow. Um, so this is really critical for the COP26 uh, outcome. And we know already from uh, what uh, especially developing and most vulnerable countries have said, that they will look exactly at what comes out uh, from Rome. And while this is a major opportunity, uh, this is also a major risk uh, because failing to agree to new commitments will mean that COP26 might be uh, dead on, on arrival. Sobering thought. Yeah, thanks. I just wanted to ask, obviously, the, the G20 has not been around for a very long time, but, but it's been around for a couple of decades now. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about its track record as an organization on climate change. Has climate change featured much in past G20 summits? And have we seen progress made at that level? Yes, increasingly, climate change uh, has made into the room of the G20, uh, although that wasn't the original reason of why the G20 uh, came about. In 2009, just in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis, the G20 finance minister were uh, convened to uh, discuss for the first time how to coordinate a response to the crisis. So it really, in a sense, it came about from a big global crisis, which was finance. And and the reason why today we need the G20 is for another big, big uh, crisis, and that's the climate crisis, but also not the climate crisis as we saw today. We also have uh, other crises, uh, uh, like, such as the health and the nature crisis. And so uh, the format that was built over 10 years ago uh, really comes in hand and needs, uh, needs to deliver. So while the G20 doesn't have a strong track record on climate, now there isn't a better time for it. And uh, especially now, this year is also important after four years of geopolitical fragmentation uh, driven by you know, the, uh, the Trump administration approach to uh, multilateralism. And so um, this year not only is important for, for climate and health and also the financial response to the COVID crisis, but also to really rebuild a sense of global cooperation and trust that we lost over the past four years. Thanks so much. Yeah. And, and we've heard very much from the Biden administration in the US, this, this message that multilateralism is back. So it'll be an interesting test for this. So I just would like to come to this Venice meeting that took place at the start of this month. We're speaking now just a week after it took place. Could you maybe tell us a bit about what the hopes were for this meeting and, and what was on the agenda from a climate perspective? Sure. So the hope was really to come out of Venice with a sense of a, an agenda that leaders and also finance minister could uh, endorse or adopt uh, in October. Um, so in terms of the process, we are really in the middle of the road uh, in a sense uh, that we uh, it's uh, July and normally in July we have preparatory meetings uh, towards the, the big summit and also the, uh, the finance uh, ministerial, which will happen just two weeks before the leader summit. So uh, Venice was really a moment to uh, take stock, but also to set out 
uh, the ambitions and that we need to see to be then adopted. And um, what we really saw from the Venice uh, Climate Conference is a, a new momentum, thanks to the leadership of the heads of international organizations, uh, such as Kristalina Georgieva from the IMF, uh, but also the, uh, the Malpas from the World Bank, uh, and Christine Lagarde from the European Central Banks. They uh, they speeches really set out a, you know, what concrete action their organizations, but also what they, what uh, political leaders need to mandate them to do, uh, which was really, uh, really encouraging. And, you know, that goes from uh, how to ensure that there is a fiscal space for every country to recover better from the crisis, how to increase the um, firepower of uh, public banks. And I must say that we really saw an important signal from the Italian presidency in uh, setting up a, or giving a mandate for for reviewing the capital adequacy of MDBs, uh, which will start this year. And this is exactly what we need to understand, you know, what is the capacity that the uh, the multilateral development banks need to address uh, the global crisis. But we also saw, especially from, from Christine Lagarde, a really strong commitment to review the way that the uh, European Central Bank integrate climate risk into the assessment and therefore, you know, how uh, better understanding how climate risk present a threat to the, to the financial system. And also, we also saw a strong call from uh, Marcani to have private finance actors step up, but also uh, countries adopt mandatory guidelines for climate risk disclosure. So we really said we, we had a, a menu of uh, options that uh, leaders need to uh, consider. And I would also add maybe two important pillars that we need to, to see. One is on uh, taxonomy, so how country can agree on green norms for investment. And this is a very live conversation in the G20, which is carried uh, forward uh, uh, within the G20 Sustainable Finance Working Group. And this year, uh, interestingly, the working group is chaired by uh, both China and the US. And so we really see an opportunity for a deep deepening and a deeper cooperation between US and China on, on climate from a very finance perspective. And the taxonomy, it's uh, it's, a, it's a core pillar for it. Uh, the other one I'd, I'd like to mention is uh, is climate finance. Uh, we do uh, need more and uh, increasing uh, increased pledges from developed countries uh, on climate finance. This is a key uh, condition for the success of COP26. And developed countries in particular, so let's say G7 countries in particular, uh, need to uh, step up or some of them or those countries uh, like uh, the United States and Italy that haven't yet uh, stepped up according to their fair share needs to do more before COP26. Reading some of the responses by pundits, but also by um, leaders from major think tanks and, and things here in, in the UK, it, it seems that the outcomes from the Venice meeting were a cause for concern for some people and, and that maybe the meeting was presented as, as a bit of a missed opportunity, particularly on this climate finance question. Do you think that it's maybe that they had too high hopes for that, that we were never really going to see that progress at that point? in Venice and that that really is something we need to wait for later in the year? Or do you think it actually is a cause for concern? On climate finance, is a, it is a cause of concern. That said, we know that this is a leaders level conversation and leaders level decisions. So at the very latest in at the G20, but to be honest, also, for example, ANGA in September could be a good occasion where leaders such as uh, President Biden, but also uh, Prime Minister Draghi, 
uh, really step up and put forward a new pledge. Uh, of course, you know, Venice would have been a great stage for Italy and for the finance minister, uh, Franco, to put forward. And that was a huge missed opportunity for Italy. But that said, we, we, we came out from Venice with a strong uh, reform agenda for, for finance. And, and on that count, uh, we can really be pleased from the momentum on uh, really financial reforms and from the leadership that we saw from the heads of institutions that I mentioned before. So, uh, you know, while climate finance is still lacking, I think on reforms, we have a sense of a roadmap or, or a Venice agenda that really help us guide towards or, or crystallize the decision that need to be made. Just earlier, when you were talking about the significance of the G20, you made that link between the Rome summit in October and then COP26 happening sort of almost immediately afterwards. With that in mind, what do you think success looks like for the Rome summit? What progress would need to be made in order to carry that through to COP26? So we need to see uh, uh, action, uh, especially commitment in the in the real uh, economy. Uh, and by that, I mean, we need to see a, a signal or ideally a, a commitment from the G20 country that coal will be uh, phased out uh, very soon. So phasing out coal uh, or a signal on or around, around those lines would be a, a game changer from the G20. So we got exactly that signal from the G7 and then they're doing it. And there's two uh, dimensions here. One, phasing out coal in the power sector, so at domestic level but also phasing out international finance for, for coal around the world. And uh, we got very good signal from the, uh, from the G7, from almost all of them. Uh, we know that uh, Japan is still, uh, is still struggling with that. And, and really, Japan needs to step up. But if we have a similar or, or the intention to move in this direction from the G20, and in particular from China and India, that would be a massive, a massive game changer on, on coal phase out. Secondly, I think we need to see from developed country or the G20 developed country that included, you know, the G7, a really a much more stronger ambitions on uh, ending finance for all fossil fuels. We know that finance for oil and gas and particularly gas investment abroad is, is huge. And uh, this is really uh, what will uh, make the difference really uh, between 1.5 and 2 degrees in the end, but also will determine the development pathway of a lot of developing and most vulnerable countries and whether they will be locked in in a carbon intensive system because gas is uh, can be considered or should be considered a carbon intensive fuel uh, when compared to the 1.5 degrees and so the question is what future do we uh, do we support in in country that also need new uh, energy uh, investment uh, and that is a critical question for for developed country in terms of climate ambitions uh, some country or uh, or a lot of g20 country actually stepped up already but we need to see increase ndcs uh, before cop 26 in particularly from china from india from indonesia and from uh, Saudi Arabia, they really need to step up and increase their midterm uh, ambitions. Uh, I would add also Australia among those countries. Uh, it's not a developing country, but Australia is really a bit of um, the one odd out, if you want, uh, from <laughs> within the developed countries. And thirdly, uh, I think 
if we get a strong uh, signal on 1.5 from all the G20 countries, that would be also be a game changer in Glasgow. So aligning the, uh, let's say, investments and policy and the system of the G20, so for, you know, of the biggest economies in the world to a 1.5, and ideally also to a net zero target by 2050 uh, would be massive in terms of uh, mitigation. I would also add, as before, the uh, climate finance piece, which is about really solidarity. uh, And this is really on the shoulder of the developed countries. Again, we go back to the US, to Italy, and and also Australia and other countries. And within that, um, I think pointing out that adaptation and loss and damage need to have a much higher allocation of funding and and ideally a balance of funding uh, between mitigation and adaptation would be an ideal outcome for uh, from the from the G20 uh, and maybe the very last point it's about we need to come out of from of from with a new sense of really global solidarity and cooperation, because this is really what is lacking. After the G7 summit, we really saw the response from China. We really saw, you know, how much, uh, you know, the US and uh, and also partly uh, the UK are pushing for building alternative system, for example, to the uh, BRI and, you know, an alternative uh, vision and framework for development. And there are good reasons for that. But fundamentally, we need then that these frameworks, you know, if doesn't matter if you call it BRI or building back better world, they both need to work for climate. And that's is something that uh, needs to be reached or bridged within the, the G20. And that is something that we need to see that, uh, you know, enhanced cooperation on, on development uh, needs to be there. And uh, there isn't a better fora than the G20 uh, country to, to try to achieve that. And therefore, the role, for example, of Draghi, uh, but also Johnson, in bridging the different positions, especially between the US and, and China, is, uh, is critical. I wanted to just pick you up on that point around solidarity that you made at the end, which I thought was really important. Obviously, we've seen in the past year the sort of limits of global solidarity in another crisis, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic, and much was made in 2020 of the failure of the G20 to come up with a system for, for sort of coordinating a global response to coronavirus. I just wondered whether you think that lessons can or will be learned from that experience to apply to the climate crisis? And should we be worried that uh, they were unable to take action on COVID and that that could be applied also to, to the climate question? Yes, we should definitely be worried. But at the same time, I think that the COVID crisis is really opening up an opportunity for rethinking how we build system for addressing global shocks. The COVID crisis is an alarm bell that humanity needed. Everyone needed to feel it on their skin and everyone needed to see what it means to lose people you love, but also to live your freedom and the cost that a a crisis produced in country, uh, for example, India or, or Africa or Latin America, that do, that do not have the same welfare system uh, that that we enjoy in Europe, in the UK, and, and other part of the developed uh, world. So this is an, an uh, I think, if that doesn't happen now, I don't know when, because we really uh, in the 
for many generations, even they, they, you know, in the developed world, we didn't see anything like this. It's a real an opportunity to rebuild a system so that everyone and everywhere can have is more protected. And I think many things that we saw over the past year, positive changes in terms of you know how we spend our money, uh, what we value, and, and what we care about. It is something that probably we would have got to this point maybe in five years' time or six years' time. Uh, you know, even think practical things as like work, working from home, we would have gone, we, would, we got there maybe in five years, uh, having lots of liquidity and capital to spend on rebuilding. We would have maybe, you know, we would have gotten so COVID has, has accelerated the crisis, has really accelerated something that would have happened anyway. Maybe, and I say maybe. We don't really live in 2021. Maybe we live already in 2025 and we don't know that. But that acceleration is really key for climate and especially for climate, I would say, because climate is about time. And so this is a wake-up call that really maybe buy us a little bit more time of something that we don't really have, which is time. So this is a major opportunity uh, and the recovery from it uh, will determine whether we basically we stay below two degrees and we have any any chance to keep uh, within 1.5. So how we spend the recovery uh, funds or, or is really critical. Absolutely. I mean, it, it feels like a year has rushed by, but I didn't realise that 15 had passed. I just have one more question. Obviously, at the start of the conversation, we were talking about how Italy and the UK are hosting these, these meetings and summits this year and the importance of the role of those two countries. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit, give us your sense of how Italy is performing in this role. The UK has come under some criticism for maybe policies that kind of undermine their message, for instance, the cut to international aid spending and the license for a new coal power station and all of these sort of domestic decisions. How has Italy been performing in your view uh, this year? And, and what do you think their role is going to be as we lead up to the real sort of decision time in, in the autumn? Yes, I, I think actually the Italy, Italy and the UK have performed in a similar way, in a sense, both of them have really set out strong agendas for the G7 and the G20, uh, and the UK is doing a very good job with the COP26 agenda and try to rally every country around and really doing a, a thorough work around uh, around negotiations uh, for the outstanding issues. And so in terms of agenda setting, is really is really good both from both countries. But in a, in a similar way, both countries, you mentioned some, some of the shortcomings of uh, domestic leadership, if you want the UK, so something similar we, we see in Italy. Uh, for example, on climate finance, Italy at the moment has absolutely no plan to step up uh, pledges. And on, on the domestic front, for example, in terms of decarbonization, why Italy has made important step forward in the past in terms of deployment of renewable energy, they are, Italy is very, very behind on the deployment of electric vehicles and all the electric mobility, um, whereas the UK is very much on the front run on this. So um, as you see on, on the domestic front, we really need to see more leadership and more uh, higher commitments. And this is really, uh, will be about the, the credibility of uh, what Italy and the UK will ask other countries to do. And we really need to, to both of them, to step up in terms of concrete commitments and new policy for the domestic uh, transformation. That's where I see uh, I see both of them. Of course, I think Boris Johnson and, uh, and Draghi, they have different roles because, of course, 
the G7 is a very different forum than the G20. So I think uh, Draghi will have more responsibility of trying to find a compromise and bring together the country from, a, from, from different positions. But Boris Johnson can bring in the kind of climate leadership that uh, he, he showed in Cornwall, to be honest, and that the UK is showing with the uh, preparation organization and the diplomacy of COP26. So huge opportunity for, for both countries. I would say that also perhaps Italy has an advantage here, and that is of having the uh, support and, again, the diplomacy and the political support of the European uh, Union. Italy, as a European member state, of course, uh, now the third biggest, has you know huge responsibility, but also can coordinate uh, and can leverage the interests of all countries uh, and the position of country, the voice of all country, uh, and therefore really make the G20 a success for Europe, but also for the planet and for the world, and where we need a strong Europe. And I would say that, if you will, paradoxically, the UK needs a strong Europe for uh, the success of COP26. And so we need to see how that will play out. And I must say that in a, in a, in a post-Brexit world, the vacuum at the international European level that inevitably the UK, the UK uh, gave up is a huge opportunity for Italy to step in and become that European interlocutor for, for China, for the US, that can reposition Italy on on the global map uh, in a way that perhaps before um, the UK had. Absolutely. Well, um, it will be great to maybe get you back on at the end of the year to see how all of these <laughs> how all of these conversations have played out. Luca Bergamaschi, thank you so much for for that overview and and for your time today. Thank you. All right, well, that is it for this episode. We will be back in your feeds very soon. In the meantime, if you want to keep up with the work of the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme at Chatham House, you can follow us on Twitter at ch underscore environment or visit the website www.chathamhouse.org. We would very much appreciate it if you could subscribe on whichever podcast app you are using to listen to this episode and also leave us a review because it makes it much easier for other people to find us. Till next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.